Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Fading shot. Up. Good for Giannis at the buzzer. Bucks win it. Last Dance documentary is finally over, but we are just getting started. There's so much to get into, and I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. But first... And now, 184 centimeters from down under, number three, Kane Pittman! First of all, you, you've already completely thrown everyone off. Uh, well, you're, you're American listeners anyway. I shouldn't say that. I, I'm sure we've got a worldwide audience here, but 184 centimeters, I think, has already uh, stumped everyone. Yeah, how many how many stone is that? Oh, now, now you've thrown me. I, 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 I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, uh, Kane, everyone who's listening to this already knows who Kane Pittman is. I want to say, before I forget, Kane has been doing incredible work. We can even say, I mean, Kane has pretty much run the summer. And in a time without sports, Kane got George Carl and Charles Gardner and Marcus and Chad Ford and probably some others I'm forgetting, uh, Alex Lazary. Uh, Locked on Bucks is really really reached some new heights and i think you know for someone who listened to locked uh, you know locked on bucks back when it was brew hoop and when it was you know prank and steve on horn and then how could they ever replace steve on horn and then eric's there and then we love eric and then how can they possibly replace eric um kane you've really you've really taken it to a new level and i, I just wanted to say that off the jump it's 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 been incredible content lately well uh first of all thank you i it's been a little bit difficult because I took over the podcast at the start of the the season or the start of the 2019-20 season. So that was, I guess, the middle of October. But I pretty much walked in straight to the easy part. There was games. And if you're doing mm-hmm. a daily podcast when there's games, it's easy. you got stuff to talk about. People want to listen to that. So it's been a challenge. We've still somehow managed to run the show daily, uh, which is kind of crazy in itself i guess it's been over over two months now but yeah i've been fortunate i I, i'm persistent that's the thing i I send a lot of emails and people say no and then i email them again (laughs) and i I think Mm -hmm. people just get so sick of me being a pest and annoying that they they just let people come on with me to shut me up but uh i'll take it i'm happy i'm happy with that and and of course you're being gracious but I will say again, they've all been great. I've listened to all of them, but especially for you to be the guy, the non-American guy, not that we care about that, to 
get George Carl to tie down George Carl to ask George Carl tough questions. It was an I told I told you I was, I was so proud of you for that. That was really like the white whale for a lot of us. And it it was just if it, if for whatever reason you haven't listened to, I know George Carl has a podcast now, so I suppose. But there there was just no level of access to George Carl. It was one of the things that really for Bucks fans in the '90s going into the 2000s, just just so many questions as to why it happened. And I thought, to the extent that he could be, I thought he was candid. Yeah, I think it's interesting because the the conversation with him. I knew either way, and I was kind of anxious about it because, like you sort of said, I felt there was some responsibility to make sure that you you threw him some some difficult questions because uh, this is certainly I know is a period that still causes a lot of angst amongst Bucks fans with the way things played out. So yeah, credit to him. I will also say that at times during the interview, I mean, he he gave I, I thought he was really honest, but at the same time, mm. it's always going to be one of those cases where. Not everyone's going to be satisfied with what he has to say. And then you're going to get a different side of the story from Ray, I'm sure, if, if, if you could tie him down. I mean, that's just the way these things work. But that, that was a fun one for sure. For me, I mean, you know, uh, I sort of jumped on. It always feels weird to say, but I jumped on the Bucks bandwagon at the end of that run or during 2001 playoffs. So uh, I, caught the, <laughs> I caught the back end of that or, or the bad period, but I certainly wasn't as invested as a, as a lot of people were. Um that that followed the team through the 80s 90s and and that run so i'm also not as emotionally attached let's just say that but i i understand it's it's a it's a period that i think is always going to be spoken about and you're right he over the last couple of months george carl has come out a little bit and and become more available let's say but it's fun it's it's good to see him talking about some of those things there's a an emotional kind of hedging of bets that comes from that time period. It, it, and um, I don't know if, if, if Frank coined the phrase, never trust the bucks or just uh, <laughs> it, it, it came out of, but, but it, it's, it's a perfect phrase for people who weren't really old enough to witness any of the greatness of the eighties bucks and then the Bucks were like just this this one year blip in two thousand and one, and by two thousand and two it was toast. And then Ray was gone shortly afterwards, and everything not you know not to make light of the people who are suffering and dying, but everything including up to and including the COVID crisis, yeah, in a way back in your mind you feel like it's like yeah same old Bucks, and you can't blame the Bucks for this one, but there's just this sort of kind of loser mentality. And and that's probably why it's it's great to talk about it in relation to the Bulls because the Bulls very much, uh, for for a decade or more, along with other teams, made the Bucks feel lesser. But that that kind of feeling, that inferiority complex, I think endures to this day. Yeah, let me ask you about that because I I know just this morning on Twitter I, I tweeted something out about about the the episodes. Obviously, we're going to go through here as as the last dance finished up, but. And I had a couple of Bucks fans that sort of tweeted at me saying, "Well, I can't watch it. It's it's too frustrating or or agonizing or painful for me to watch the Bulls' success." And I, I guess I never really thought about that because I know that that I was fortunate enough to to go to the the Bucks Bulls playoff series in 2015, and that made that was the first time it made a little bit of sense to me being in the Bradley Center with the Bulls fans there, and it was really annoying, really really annoying. They were uh, mm. overwhelming. 
for the for a, a lot of the case rude let's just say that and and obnoxious they were and it was frustrating and that was the first time I got that that real sense of what that's like but I, I never really thought about this with the Bulls because I guess as a basketball fan I still want to watch that and see how that period in in, in the game transpired like to me I I never really thought that this would be something that Bucks fans would avoid but uh, I'm not sure if you ever felt that way or whether that's something that you had a sense of absolutely and i i was back i was back for i we had some degree of of limited 10 pack tickets uh growing up that me and my brother and my dad so we'd go to 10 12 uh games a year and so i was at the the 70 when the 70th one of the bucks i was also at game four uh bucks bulls 2015 too so it was really i mean it was back in town for a funeral but uh able to get tickets to that game and yes just just incredible the uh Jared to Jared connection. One one of <laughs> just the greatest Bradley center yeah. moment imaginable to send all those Chicago people back, uh, uh, back down, back down South. But yeah, I, I think Jordan was the first great player who was of my generation. And so that there's kind of two competing interests. So I always rooted against the bulls and it, and don't get me wrong. It's incredible. It was incredibly annoying because the truth is just about any bucks bulls game I've ever went to. It was more like 60, 40 Chicago, or at least it felt that way. Yeah. It, 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 it didn't, it didn't seem even or, or 60, 40 the other way. And I think that that kind of continued right up until the ascendancy of Giannis. So I don't know, 2016, 2017, it's, I, I don't live in Wisconsin anymore, but it seemed like it flipped at a certain point, but yeah. So, so wasn't really around for magic or bird or, or, or Isaiah as a fan of Dominique, but yeah, Jordan was just my guy. So I'd root for the bucks to beat, especially kind of there, there was um, a series of games where the Ray Allen, Vin Baker, big dog bucks, um, made some noise against the bulls, but tended to still lose. But I think one game, big dog had like 36 points. It was like the last game of the year. There, there were games where the bucks seemed like the next, the next team up, but the bulls basically usually came in town and did their business and dispatch with the bucks. And so it, it but I, I, I can't relate. I, I feel generation gen, generationally, the people who can endure watching the bulls are maybe five years older than me, that generation where they remember when the bucks were good. Yeah, yeah, that's that, that's that's certainly a reasonable point, and maybe you have the the I, I guess the bad memories of not being able to get over the hump in the eighties that stick with you. But yeah, I, I guess for me, I always just figured that well, the Bucks were terrible, and <laughs> yeah, it's probably annoying, but it's it's not. I I didn't think that that watching this documentary or, or watching or reliving the Bulls, I should say, having all these uh, championship parades and and whatever else would would produce that that anxiety, uh, knowing that. The Bucks were never really involved in in that time, but I get I guess it's interesting to know. It's obviously a rivalry that, that covers multiple sports. Let's say that. Well, we talked, and, and the thing also is that the Bulls, specifically Jordan, but the Bulls collectively became culture. Yeah. So, you know, the Patriots won a million Super Bowls, also, but they were never they never had the cultural kind of impact uh, with you know the shoes or the marketing or anything else to the extent that the bulls did at a certain point, like Jordan was the biggest star, not only in, in basketball, but then in baseball and then in football too. And then at a certain point he was just the biggest star, you know, it was him and Michael Jackson essentially. And then 
the kind of outsized impression that 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 he made on culture. It wasn't the same as rooting, you know, just for just for another player. And I feel like in that era too, because especially because the Bucks played the Pacers a couple times in the playoffs, it's almost the Bulls were like the Bears, but a lot of Packers fans hate the Vikings more than the Bears. It seems like yeah. the Vikings are are good a lot more often and and kind of ruin stuff for the Packers a lot more often. And so the Pacers were a little bit more hated. The problem with the Bulls is just those home games where the Bradley Center was taken over. So I, I should probably flip it on you and Kane and ask, what, what's your relationship to the 90s Bulls? Yeah, not much. And this has been the interesting thing for me. Uh, as I sort of said, I started watching basketball in the early 2000s. So growing up in Australia, was I aware of Michael Jordan? Well, of course. Uh, but it, it wasn't anywhere near at the same level as what it would have been in the US. So when you talk about the culture and uh, all the different influences that he had, certainly it was a worldwide thing. We saw this through the documentary, particularly you know when we had the episode where they went over uh, to Paris. I mean, he was a worldwide phenomenon, but probably not necessarily for me. I mean, I, I, I like I said, I was definitely aware of who he was. And as time has gone by, I've gone back like everyone else and, I think like my brother gave me one of those box sets that I think a lot of people had with the DVDs. I think it was the second three Pete with all the all the playoff games. So I've certainly gone back and watched games, but uh, for me, this has been a pretty unbelievable experience to go back and get the behind the scenes footage and really get a feel for for what it was like to be, uh, or what it would have been like, I should say, to be a, a diehard basketball fan in this era where Michael Jordan is is just this megastar. Every city he goes to, uh, the scenes that we saw uh, with those the traveling Bulls team that, for me, I, I can't really compare anything to it. I know I've been over the years in hotels just by chance th- th- that the Warriors have stayed at, and that's been kind of crazy, but it's just a- another level. And I so I think for me to, to see this and to see what a spectacle it was for the Bulls to come to town is, has been incredible. It's been, a, it's been a real learning experience for me. So you're the perfect person to ask then, were you able to keep up with the timeline? A lot of people seem to have uh, really struggled where they're jumping from 93 to 98 and they're uh, kind of drawing these parallels between eras. And so one one moment they're talking about BJ Armstrong, then they're talking about LeBradford Smith, you know, years before. Have you been able to hang with with most of that? I mean, I have, but I I think... If I had no knowledge of these teams or hadn't gone back and, and read books or whatever or, or watched other shows, then maybe I would be a little bit thrown off because I think that you did need to have some sort of understanding of, of how the rosters changed from the first three-peat to the second three-peat and, and some knowledge of what happened in the 80s to to understand how this how all this came together. So, yeah, I, I could see that that might be a little bit of putting if you were coming into this with a completely blank slate. I think I, I, I said, I, I think I, I learned a lot and there was a lot that I, that I didn't really know, but in terms of the key players, the key pieces, I feel like I was pretty well versed coming in. So I, I think I was okay with that. And in many respects, I actually enjoyed it being able to go back and see what happened, um, you know, in, in prior lives to get to know the other characters. We know that this was obviously, a Michael Jordan documentary. That's not that's yeah. not gloss over that. Yeah. But I did enjoy, you know, parts like last night where you get a closer look at Steve Kerr. I was I was happy that uh, Tony Kukoc had his little moment a, a few episodes back. That that was enjoyable for me. 
Yeah, and whether you feel... I didn't feel manipulated by the kind of... By the Kerr-Jordan parallel, I can understand if if other people were. But that was just one thing I had never really made the connection from. There's a lot of themes of fathers and sons running through a lot of this that, that James Jordan clearly was essentially Jordan's best friend while he was alive. And I, I think um, the parts of the documentary and the, these final two episodes that really tug on the heartstrings have to do with um, his security guard, the security, like, I don't think anybody before we watched these, <laughs> these 10 episode documentary would have thought that the security guards would have been some of the most fleshed out characters. We really mm-hmm. get to know is it Gus? I want to say Gus. I was looking at my notes. Um, yeah, okay. yeah. His security, his security. So we we had um John. I want to say it's Wozniak. I think it's John Michael Wozniak was kind of the star of <laughs> of the the first few groups, just kind of with his uh, blonde perm and kind of the mustache and the whole deal. And then we um, really get this arc of of Gus and um, who we saw in earlier episodes. And then he he goes through chemo and he comes back and um became a bit of a surrogate father to Jordan. I thought that parallel and then a parallel with Steve Kerr as much as I I, I knew the Steve Kerr story. I, I didn't remember I don't think I don't know that too many people knew the Steve Kerr story while he was playing about his father. Uh I I think it was a story when he was playing college ball, but I that that's not something that I remember a lot of people talking about. But I had never made that comparison in my head at all that oh they both not just lost their fathers, they both had their fathers murdered right. and, and, and they've never talked about it. It's too painful. And so I, I thought that it's kind of the thing you can do when you jump around in the timeline a little bit, but I, I thought the Steve Kerr part was just perfect. It wasn't too long. It wasn't too short. And it just, just, just heart wrenching to watch. Yeah. Well, the security thing for me was interesting in, in terms of the relationships that, that Michael had with those guys, because to me, the, the thing that I, I took from the whole 10 episodes and we saw something a few weeks ago where I can't remember what episode it was, where he was doing that commercial, I guess, where he was like, oh, do you really want to live my life or whatever, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And we got a sense of this throughout the whole 10 episodes that it would have been tough to live that life, particularly on the road where he's stuck in his hotel room and he can't go out. And it's not a normal level of, uh, you know, celebrity superstar walking down the street uh Giannis TMZ taking photos of him in LA this is he can't he can't walk anywhere without being completely mobbed and I I think in a sense it seemed to me that it was probably a a pretty lonely life and I think it's fair to say that he didn't have a lot of close friends on the team and the security guys were in many ways the people that he spent the most time with and Obviously, with the the murder of his father, he was missing that really close link that uh, he and that relationship he had with his dad. And it seemed to me that the security became kind of a family for him. And I know he mentioned Gus was that father figure for him, but it was kind of sad to me to see that not not that these people weren't good people, but that those were the closest people he had in his life on the road during these experiences. It did seem like it was probably a lonely life for someone that everyone assumed from the outside was just living this magical, uh, you know, experience that, that everybody would absolutely dream of. It's, it's 
not quite the case. Yeah. I I think one of the things I'm just thinking about this now, uh, episodes nine and 10 really, as we expect from dramas really paid off a lot of the dangling threads that um, the first, you know, first four or so episodes set up. So we've got a lot of people who are kind of uncomfortable by the treatment of Jerry Krause because he's dead, but also because we have this, you know, one way of looking at it is great footage, but you get all this footage of Jerry Krause being belittled by Jordan. And, you know, there's, there's other stuff that's referenced and just Jerry Krause, not even in, in his dealings with the bulls, but just Jerry Krause at the podium, you know, kind of uh, combative with, with uh, Craig Sager. And we have all this Jerry Krause stuff. And I was thinking, you know, they're laying it on kind of thick. I wonder if Jerry Krause gets a little bit of a hero moment at the end. And he sort of does, but you know, people, I think Scotty at the end of, yeah, people start saying nice stuff about him by episode 10. And in, in a similar fashion, we have the Jordan punches Steve Kerr story, which is a story that, that I feel like everyone kind of knows that again, wasn't a story at the time, but just came out in the aftermath or came out when Steve Kerr was a media personality or, or just, it came out later. Uh, I think in the time that Steve Kerr was doing TNT games and, so again, whatever you want to think about, and I think this is kind of a general theme about what exactly is acceptable behavior and what what is appropriate in your search for a title, and these kind of themes resonate to this day. But I, I will say that I felt episode nine shows the degree of trust that Jordan had in Kerr. And so the ninety seven, the ninety seven finals especially, you know, they're talking the, the documentary goes from showing showing the murder and Steve Kerr saying, My dad would have loved that I that I got to play with a team like that. And I think about it when the anthem plays and then they kind of cut to Steve Kerr during the anthem and they cut to kind of that the the closing moments of I want to say game six. It's usually game six with the Bulls. I think it was game six in ninety seven yeah. two. And, and and it's it's real satisfying to to see Jordan kind of mumble to him, be ready. And, and Kerr says, I'll be ready. And then he hits the <laughs> shot. And so it's, it's just very satisfying that they came, you know, kind of full circle on this relationship. And then what about Kerr, Kerr uh, the speech, <laughs> the, the championship speech it, it yeah, is just marvelous. Yeah. I think, so I was thinking about that as well. And there was two things I thought of when I was watching the speech. First of all, uh, I was like, well, yeah, he's pretty comfortable with the relationship they have, even if, as we sort of said, they didn't connect and actually speak about their experiences. You know that they'd been through it together uh, on and off the court, and and obviously the trust was there, and he had the big shots. So he's feeling pretty confident that he can uh, say that, first of all, because to me, I don't think a lot of guys would have been up on the stage and even said that. They would have been too scared to even think about saying that. And secondly, I, I couldn't help but think to myself, imagine if... Michael Jordan did play on and Steve Kerr went to another team and, you know, Jordan would probably use that speech as motivation to crush Steve Kerr and whatever team he was on down the line. So, hey, it was risky business. He must have known that Jordan wasn't coming back. Um, I was thinking whether it's a wedding toast or anything else, a great way to end any story is to say, uh, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just a mar- it's just a marvelous speech. Exactly. But by Kerr to do this thing he just milks it you know and it, it you know a lot of people would have 
would have went for the first joke and been like, you know, I guess I got to bail out Michael again. But he just kind of milks it and he goes on and on. And and I, what does he say? He says, Michael says, you know, I'm not Phil. I'm not that comfortable in these late game situations. <laughs> and the crowd laughs. I did notice, though. It, Krause isn't laughing in the background. I feel like Krause is just annoyed. Krause is, t- is like the second row behind. All the players are just are just laughing and selling the jokes, and Krause is still kind of frowning. Uh, I didn't I didn't we- see that. But I, while we are talking about Krause, there was one cut that I found interesting, and I think it was in. I'm gonna say I, I think it was in episode nine. But there was yeah, I've got it here. I wrote it down. So it said if it was to be ended, it would be ended by someone in a suit. And it was just such a, a fitting cut that at that time there was nothing about Jerry Krause in, in this instance of, of the episode or what we were watching. And then as soon as that was said, it directly cut to, for whatever reason, Jerry Krause walking in one of the hallways in the arena. And I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. there's, another, there's another dig. But uh, you pointed to it, I, I think, at the end. A lot of people were asking, why isn't Reinsdorf more implicated in this and why isn't there more about him? Well, uh, at the end, I think... As you sort of said, Pippen was the one that said that Krauss was, you know, probably the greatest GM of all time, which is a significant thing for him to say. I mean, you didn't get it from Jordan, which would have been different, but yeah. from Pippen, it still meant something. And then Reinsdorf was the one that came off looking really bad when he said, "I just didn't want to bring these guys back together because it was going to cost too much." I mean, that was a that yeah. was a pretty striking way to end it. Is it crazy that I've thought about these teams for 20 years or whatever else, and I'm kind of coming down slightly more on Krause's side the more this goes on? Not that I just never have thought about this part of it, because it's very true that, you know, after 98, they were, Simmons was talking about this today, or he's been talking about it for a week, how, you know, they went into the lockout. And every time there's a lockout, I mean, it's it's basically this quarantine right now is it, in a sense, it's it's functionally a lockout, you know, where you just kind of forget about stuff and the stuff that you really cared about with your team. It's just all like, you know, encased in amber for the time being. And so then the season was back and everyone was excited that the season was coming back and look, you know, and, and the Bulls were just kind of done. And I think people just kind of accepted it. But I totally agree and 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 episode 10 ends with Jordan kind of lamenting, you know, his take on on what happened. But I I've I've Kane if you're not aware, I've pretty much ripped Scotty Pippen every single episode of this, <laughs> even 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 the episodes that didn't have anything to do with the episode even when I was just ranting. I get why they didn't want to pay him and I totally I've always understood. And let's let's put on our put on our GM caps for a second, our our amateur GM caps for a second. I totally understand why your impulse, whether you followed through or not was to Jalen Rose has said on his podcast that there was a deal for Jalen. And ah, I'll remember it was, was it Jalen and Kemp? They were always trying to move him for Kemp at a certain point. Krause wanted to trade Pippen for the pick and he wanted McGrady. And you know, the timelines probably don't line up for them to win another title with Jordan, but they were obsessed with uh, keeping the dynasty going. And ironically, the thing that they tried to prevent, you know, happened anyway. But I, I can totally, I, I was I was 100% against Krause for all this time. And now I can sort of get what he was trying to do if, because the other thing that this doc kind of show, it doesn't show because Rodman has these hero moments, but Rodman was also basically done. And so if you can't bring back Pippen and you can't bring back Rodman and you can't replace that production, then maybe it was just over no matter what. 
Yeah, so I, I don't know if you've caught this, but I, I did read it yesterday. It was from KC Johnson, who, um, for those that don't know, a long-time Bulls reporter, and he's been publishing little pieces from a, an unpublished memoir that Jerry Krause was going to, I, I guess was going to uh, release as a book at, at some point. And yesterday, just before the episode, the the piece that he revealed was Krauss talking about this team and, and what they were thinking about. And I've seen a lot of people say, and I, I tend to agree, that it definitely changes things if the Bulls come back in 99 and don't win the title. I mean, they are just automatically viewed differently. And, and I mean, everyone's still going to say, well, they were great. They won six uh, titles in eight years. It's It's unbelievable. But... The fact that they ended this way and people still uh, talking about this and saying, well, yeah, they could have come back and won the next year, I think adds to to what they were. And Krauss spoke about the guys that you uh, already mentioned there. Obviously, Pippen was the one that, that wanted to get paid. And even Jordan admitted he was going to be the difficult one out of everyone to bring back because he really was after that payday. But the other guys mentioned were Luke Longley, who ultimately ended up signing a long-term deal with Phoenix didn't even last half of that deal because he was broken down at that point and a shadow of himself. Rodman hardly played at all after that. And the concern that, that Krauss mentions was that his off-court <laughs> antics had caught up with him and he had nothing left in the tank. They didn't really know who they could even bring back and then there was a chance that maybe they bring back this team. And I know a lot of people say, well, uh, they would have rolled through the East. The East wasn't great that year. I, I think that was the year that the Knicks finished eighth, did they? And and, and made the finals. So mm-hmm. it was an interesting year. And yes, the Bulls maybe could have made the finals. But when you, when you sit down and lay it all out, it makes sense why they were concerned about doing that. Does it still take balls to say, yeah, we're not, we're not paying these guys after they've just won six titles? Not really. But uh, I guess uh, everything, when it's when it's laid out, you can sort of understand, I guess. That doesn't mean if I was a Bulls fan, I would be happy about it. But that it, it makes some sense. You made it 29 minutes without mentioning Luke Longley. So <laughs> you had the uh, yeah, under that's impressive. on that one, so. uh, By the way, he, <laughs> he, had, he had a few highlights on uh, last night in the last two episodes. A couple of nice plays there. So shout out to Luke. I thought he was good. So you have to tell me this being younger and being of, of of a different generation. Luke Longley and so many of these big men just wouldn't be playable today at, yeah. at all. And, and we talk about not just the Jazz series, but I, we kind of skipped over the uh, Reggie Miller kind of Pacer series, which was the kind of most grinded out. And similarly, Smith's was better than Longley. But, but at this point, I don't know if he really necessarily was in 98 anymore but these kind of grind out eastern conference kind of classic confrontations and but at at this point in the league a lot of times a lot of people have said to me have kind of oversold the expansion aspect of it i think expansion was part of it but just in this era some of these games would just be 70 75 to 79 and it would just end that way and i and i i imagine that you kind of turn up your nose at that more than i do you know, years later. Well, I recently watched, and I actually look back on this finals, I think more positively than almost anyone else from what I read and what I see. But I remember Mm -hmm. one of the first 
final series, one of the first, I mean, I'd been following basketball for a few years, but one of the first final series that I really invested in was uh, the Pistons in San Antonio. And I remember at the time thinking that it was pretty entertaining and it was enthralling and the games were close. And there was a lot of defense, obviously, when you think about those two teams. But I watched those games recently and it was tough. It was tough to watch. I mean, just looking... Uh, the big thing for me is the spacing. We know now. I mean, we we watch we watch the Bucks in terms of the way they space the floor, but everyone across the league. But the game has just changed so much, and it is difficult to watch some of those games. I think the playoffs is a different spectacle altogether. So you can go back and watch these uh, Jordan playoff games, and you can be completely invested in this because you know that the stakes are high. And I think you always mm-hmm. in a in a playoff game in a in a finals game, you're always like okay. If it's low scoring, yeah, maybe it's not aesthetically the most pleasing thing, but it, you know, the stakes are so high that it, it still means something. Whereas uh, some of these regular season games from these teams, from these teams for during these seasons, were just brutal. And I think I, I mm-hmm. am one that believes that the, the game has never been better to watch. I mean, you can't tell me uh, there's there's exceptions. Okay, I mean, I don't need to be watching the Wizards giving up 160 points a night, but. I think that the way the game is played now is just it's better to watch. And that doesn't mean that things haven't changed and there isn't aspects of the game that I would love to have back. Certainly the big man, as you mentioned, I mean, you're right. A guy like uh, Luke Longley would be unplayable right now. And it's interesting to, well, we're we're talking about the Bucks and Australians, Andrew Bogut, if you can't shoot and you're a big man and you just purely defend, we're seeing those guys being phased out. It's kind of sad Mm -hmm. um, from that point of view, but... Uh, it is crazy to think that wasn't that long ago. I haven't ripped um, Adam Silver yet on this podcast, so I I guess so my problem will be <laughs> yes, sir. Um, my problem with his stewardship is that I'm just not sure there's a lot of intentionality with it. And so it would seem to me that kind of things just happen. And so the game has become what it's become. And and in some ways it's a lot more thrilling. It's a lot, but in some ways it's a lot worse, I think. And I just don't know. I, again, all of these arguments kind of go back to balance, right? Everything is balanced. So you probably don't want, a David Stern kind of thing, kind of, kind of commissioner necessarily, although he got a lot done. David Stern was too harsh and Adam Silver on the other end, kind of anything goes. And so if there was an intentionality, if there was an intentional push towards more scoring and all these kind of things, if they were just like, you know what, we did focus groups and, and we don't need these big guys. These big guys are going to have to be able to shoot or they're out of here. Well, then that's kind of fine. But I think it just, like a lot of stuff just kind of happens and they just kind of go with it. And that's why people can basically travel now and and people can do moving screens now and everything else. And if they just decided, Hey, this is going to make the game more exciting in a weird kind of way. I can accept that more than just whatever James Harden happens to be doing tonight is okay because technically there may not be anything in the rule book against it, but that's, that's an opinion. I know a lot of people don't share. I wanted to ask you, so we get the Pizzagate. <laughs> we get the Pizzagate, I think, in, in, in episode nine. Um, what was your level of familiarity with the conspiracy theories 
about the food poisoning slash flu slash, you know, pizza slash hungover. Uh, talk about the flu game in the 97 finals. I mean, I, I was definitely aware that it may have been more food poisoning than flu, but I, surely I'm not the only one that was watching that last night and thinking that this is some sort of criminal activity. <laughs> I mean, it seemed, it seemed really really sinister. And I, I know Utah really want to win this series, but geez, I I don't know. I mean, this is some, this is some suspect behavior. I did say something on Twitter earlier and I, I missed it that apparently the guy that sold the pizza or delivered the pizza or something was going to be on Salt Lake Radio. I don't know. I might need to go back and listen to that. But this sounds like uh, this sounds like some really dodgy behavior from those guys. It becomes this weird thing. I, the thing that I did not totally grasp, and there, I've mentioned on other episodes, there's just been just a mountain of excellent podcasts to kind of mediocre podcasts, but even the mediocre ones are pretty good. And I hadn't even really listened to the Zach Lowe episodes kind of, kind of touching on a lot of this. And those of course are excellent. Also the Bomani Jones um, kind of semi-weekly ones are just, just great, just great. And he's had Joe Dumars on and he's had just a bunch of people and it's just been really interesting. But the thing that I didn't quite grasp is how little Michael Jordan ever seemed to have slept (laughs) <laughs> and th- this has no association with like, but it, it informs everything. And when I read reread the Jordan rules going into this podcast, he was playing 36 holes every day that he could. Like he wasn't sneaking in nine holes. He was, he just, Michael Jordan just seemed to never really have to sleep. And so on one hand you can say, well, maybe he was hung over or maybe he was partying or whatever else, but it would seem that he did that every day of his life. And, and just didn't, and then got up and and worked out and, you know, had a breakfast and had a practice before practice, you know, with Pippen and then went out and and it just seems like he didn't need to sleep. So for this one time for him to have been hung over, I think that's kind of some, that's a little bit of shade kind of associated with kind of the 92 Atlantic city, uh, 92, 93 Atlantic city kind of, kind of narrative, but, but certainly he could have been hung over, but it would seem a little dodgy that, that that some kind of way he drunk too much. And then the next, the next day they're playing, you know, a night game and he's he still just, cause whatever the case, I clearly from the video, he was, whatever it was, it did a number on him. Yeah. Well, I, well, fortunately I haven't had too many cases of food poisoning in my life, but one, one time stands out to me, I was on a school trip. I must've been, uh, I don't know. I guess I must've been 16, 17 at the time. And we were at the snow, we were at the snow <clears throat> And uh, let's just say that snow trips in Australia aren't that common. So I was pretty excited. Mm. It might have actually been my first time to the snow. And I don't know, we had this like, uh, we had this meal the night before. I woke up at about two o'clock and I knew that things things were not well. And it just went downhill from there. I was throwing up all night. And the next morning I tried to get up and I was still feeling pretty sketchy. And I I tried to get up and go to the snow and I, I just could not move. I mean... If you have serious food poisoning, I, I, it's debilitating and you have zero energy and you can't do anything. <laughs> For me to think about this guy going out in that high stakes situation and playing that way, I mean, the, the guy just was not human. Yeah, and, and I, I feel like 97 was a lot more... 
satisfying um uh to i mean they were both satisfying but but the the 97 the, the 97 finals um from the shot in game 1 to kind of the the flu game just just top to bottom you know to the to the past occurs just you know what for the for the second three peat uh really a height we had Michael Buffer in 90. I think that was episode 10. We had Michael Buffer. Um, do, do you remember when Michael is Michael Buffer still a thing? I certainly I, th- I think he's still alive, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I would. I should probably I should probably look that up. No, I was thrown off by that as well. I was not expecting an appearance from him pregame. But let's let's talk about the Utah crowd because uh, have you been to a game in Utah before? No, no. You? Last, uh, last year I went and I still say to this day that was outside of the playoffs, outside of the playoffs, that was the loudest crowd by a long way that I heard all season. Those people are complete maniacs out there. I don't don't know how else to describe them. They are insane, but that's definitely a tough place to play on the road. And what about the Pacers having a street parade? It looked like a street parade for the start of the Eastern Conference Finals. (laughs) That was was some pretty serious stuff. (sighs) Um, I think somebody made the joke that it was the somebody made the Purdue joke that it was like this the drum was like the biggest drum, you know, University of Purdue, you know, <laughs> marching band or whatever that whatever that was. And people were like, Yeah, no wonder they lost. But well, but that's what I remember. I mean, that's what I remember about kind of the playoff games I went to in two thousand and two thousand and one. Um did they play the Pacers in two? I think they played the Pacers. I know they played them ninety nine and two thousand. The Pacers beat them a couple of years consecutively, and they were just. And this, you want to talk about the heyday of the Bradley Center, the just the full fortress on Fourth Street kind of thing going, where it was like, yeah, you, you know, they, of course, every they're waving towels, everyone has towels, but the, the, the Indiana, the Indiana Bucks kind of playoff rivalry was really something, and that was, I think, we said this last episode, where it was like. The one thing I'll give Reggie Miller is the second time they beat the Bucks, and he was like, we beat Milwaukee, you know, but Milwaukee was the better team. And similarly, Reggie Miller clearly thinks that in 98 that, you know, the Bulls won, but the Pacers were the better yeah. team. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, he got, he got a, he got a fair bit of airtime in these, in these episodes last night, Reggie Miller. But uh, the one thing that I wanted to ask you, and you sort of touched on it, a little bit earlier when you spoke about the officiating or you were talking about how the game has changed that Reggie Miller. So it was game four in the Eastern conference finals. Uh, the Pacers would have gone down three, one instead, Reggie Miller, Reggie Miller hits the shot. They tie the series at two apiece. Uh, that was a big shove. And you know, the, the, the funny thing is <laughs> that, that I like the fact that, and I mean, you should right now. I mean, it was 25 years ago. Yes. Let's be honest about it. And he just came out and said, well, yeah, I, I knew the way that I had to clear him out was just sprint at him, shove him and, and, and find some space. Uh, he hits the shot still, which obviously you have to get credit for that. But the, the thing I straight away thought about was the fact that I'm not sure if that happens right now, that the player doesn't just go flying to the floor and yes. depending on who it is, and in this instance, Michael Jordan, the whistle is going to blow. And I, I just think that is something else that I've noticed from going back and watching past games. Even when I was uh, back looking at the 2001 Bucks, watching those games, how much physicality the players would fight through. 
that you don't see anymore. That to me, not only was the game, I mean, because I'm not someone that believes now that the game isn't physical. I mean, of course it's physical. If you if you go to a game, you see yep. these guys, how big they are, how fast they are, how athletic they are. But I, I say the biggest difference for me is that players back in the 90s, early 2000s, obviously 80s and, and earlier, uh, would be willing to fight through contact and you don't see that anymore. And I think a big part of that is because players have been rewarded for flopping. And I, I think that that's mm-hmm. how the, the culture is being created. And I think that's the biggest difference when I look at the physicality. So this is an absolute catch-22 for any Milwaukee fan. Because any Milwaukee fan, I've probably said this every episode, feels like David Stern didn't want the Bucks to make the finals in 2001. Or certainly wanted the series to go seven. And Iverson was this ascendant star. And Iverson got a lot of bad press and some deserved and some undeserved when he was a rookie uh, for a lot of reasons that we find kind of uncomfortable. But the point is, by 2001, he was just a full-fledged star. And he started, that was kind of the apex of his kind of universal appeal. And so the league was going to make Iverson a thing. And the reason I bring this up is, when you have a league that's based on all these unwritten rules, then the officials have a great deal of power. There's this feeling that the officials are tied to the league office. Of course, the league office sets the the officiating schedule for certain games. Um, But the reason I bring this all up is that Reggie Miller push in 1998 is not the kind of call that he would have got in Chicago necessarily, but he, the the home team was supposed to get those kind of calls. You're supposed to get the benefit of the doubt at the end of the game. And there was just this general uh, idea, which I think endures today a little bit that the officials just weren't supposed to call a whistle at the end of game anyway, which of course leads to ISO ball and a lot of things that we like and we don't like, but again, as a Bucks fan, so I always, whether it's football or basketball, like the idea of just interpretive, officiating which is to say okay you know reggie miller or james harton okay you flop this one play you got kind of a ticky tack call okay great well i'm not going to call it the next time it doesn't mean i won't call it in the third quarter but i'm not going to give you five straight terrible calls and what would seem to be today is guys know that they'll get that call in the fourth quarter they know they'll probably get it at the end of the game and unless they're doing it against a bigger star they're simply going to get these calls and so it's just a constant rigging the system but again that rigging of the system the way that i like ball in the 80s and 90s and 2000s is exactly the same kind of thing that left the bucks and the kings and kind of these other small market teams on the on the outside looking in so Again, the only fair way to have any of these conversations, in my opinion, is you just have to say some things were better back then, some things are better now, and the playoffs, it was pretty good all the time. But I have no problem with that push. I love that push. He, he's running away from him, and he doesn't even look at him, and he pushes him away. And you know how and the documentary says it, that, that Jordan was just furious by this, but that's the way they played the game. Yeah, no question. I mean, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. It was just a... a, a- definitive observation i made that when i saw that i was like uh if, if that happened now i i just feel like it would have would have gone differently but uh, i don't know if are you a wrestling fan let me just ask that first of all i don't know anything about it that's that's totally- I, I know i know hulk hogan and junkyard dog and that but 
yeah, I, I know what people say, but not, not especially. That's totally fine. I mean, I'm not now. I definitely was around this time when I, when I was younger. I was definitely into it. Oh. But I still just cannot believe. I mean, how much have times changed? And I think this is the big thing I think about <laughs> when, I, when I think about how this team or this situation or this documentary even could never be replicated is because there's just so many things that, that went on within this team that just simply would not happen now. And Dennis Rodman deciding mm-hmm. in the middle of the finals he was going to get his own flight to another part of the country and go on a wrestling show and start swinging around a steel chair. Uh, I think that definitely qualifies as something that probably wouldn't happen right now. <laughs> I don't even remember it. And, and uh, when Simmons and Rosillo were doing the, the pod and they mentioned because they did the Game 6 rewatch and they were mentioning how much Bob Costas um, was talking about just dismissive of Rodman and just killing Rodman. And I, like, I, but again, I didn't, I wasn't watching. This wasn't even WWF. This was WCW. I do know that, right? This wasn't, yeah. this was like the Hogan, Hogan, um, makes the heel turn kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, at a certain point, Dennis Rodman, as we saw, I think in episode three, but we've seen throughout the doc that Rodman just leveraged his, fame and it was really only like two years and then it kind of faded he was a big deal around the time around that last year with the spurs around the time of demolition man and but he just decided he was a rock star and because he decided he was a rock star and the bulls were so big people just treated him like a rock star and the bulls just have this dynamic where where, you know jordan's still like this kind of clean cut right down the middle star so jordan's like i don't know you know, Sinatra and then Rodman decided he's, you know, Mick Jagger or somebody. And, you know, <laughs> Pippen was, I don't know, Sonny or, you know, Pippen was Fredo. Pippen's always Fredo, but like, you know, and it, Robin just decided, I don't care. <laughs> and, and it's also this weird dynamic because Phil's, you know, it, they called it the last dance. Everyone knew it was the last dance. And it's like, what are you going to do? You got to play Carl Malone. Are, are you going to bench Dennis Rodman? And it's like, yeah, no, it's, he, he did what he wanted, you know? Well, he backed it up. And that's that's the big thing. I mean, every time, uh, you know, even earlier where he took his, his little trip to Vegas mid-season, he came back, was still in great shape. He didn't lose anything. He came out and he played well. And I still, you know, to this day, that would not be something that would that would fly if you were just like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to come back and play. Obviously, you wouldn't be allowed to do that. But uh, he was, he was uh, let's just say, given some leverage that, that other players wouldn't. But I, I think... Not just with Rodman, but with the whole team and even Scotty when he decided he wasn't going to play or he put off the, the surgery at the start of the season. Phil Jackson, I know that there's many reasons why he probably would not be an effective coach right now. I mean, I don't know. That's not, not really for me to say. Maybe he would. But his ability to bring all the different personalities together and understand each player on a different level, I think was really highlighted throughout this documentary. And outside of the X's and O's and what they were able to do on the court and the individual brilliance of the players, I thought Phil's ability to be understanding of every different guy on a different level was just a huge reason for how they will be able, how they were able to come back and and win in the '98 season because if if he does anything differently, even at the start, if he's uh, critical 
uh, of Scotty and, and what he did and not being there at the start of the season, mm-hmm. it probably doesn't happen. I mean, they, they don't win the title. And what we haven't seen, and yes, you know, the people nonstop talking about um, Jordan being a producer or Jordan's um, kind of business partners being producers or however that shook out. What we haven't seen in 10 episodes that I can remember is Jordan and Phil Jackson not being in lockstep with all of these kind of decisions. Um because again, when the, the the kind of practice footage, I guess, would be after Game Three, but you know, Jordan's not giving him any guff either, you know, and they, they just they just it, it's the craziest thing, but they just seem to agree to let Rodman be Rodman, and even with the highest stakes, they were, you know, they're all joking about it, they're they're all laughing about it, and it's the it's the craziest thing, you know. It, to see Jordan still getting weepy about maybe going for seven, like he can't, he says something like, I. I I can accept losing. I can't accept not trying. And he's still kind of, it really still sticks in his craw that he couldn't go for seven. But I mean, they talk all this Zen stuff, but like the idea that control, you know, the things you can't control, don't worry about. And then Robin's back and it's like, Oh, he's back in prod and practice. That's great. Now, if they were down Oh three, it would have been different, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. No, I, one other thing, I took away from this, from the the little snippets of footage that we got, because uh, I I think you know even if you go back and watch the games over over the years, as many people have certainly as I have, uh, you don't get the the post game snippets. And I really enjoyed uh, some of the the quick clips we got from post game press conferences or pre game press conferences. Yes, and it wasn't lost on me how terrifying it must have been playing against Michael Jordan. And the Bulls, because even if you beat them, and we saw teams celebrate. I mean, we saw last week the the BJ Armstrong game where he celebrated, but you know Jordan was like, "Well, okay, well you celebrated. Now you're done. Now you're done for. Now I'm going mm-hmm. to kill you because you you made me look silly." And even these Pacers series, after they lose Game Three, uh, he's like, "Well, it's just a bump in the road." After Game Four. You saw Larry Bird's face. He's just like stone-faced because he's like, okay, well, it's 2-2, but what does this actually mean? And Jordan's just smiling and joking at the podium. And it's just like if you're the opposition playing against him and you beat him and you're on the high and then you want to see him disappointed and down and he's just smiling and laughing, it must have been soul-destroying to see this guy's confidence. Mm -hmm. I like too, and I didn't realize, I thought this last night, and Kane, uh, being the insider that you are, you, this is a glimpse of the basketball that you've seen firsthand many times. But the kind of thing that we take for granted now where you see the vanquished team go down the tunnel and that that's it's all really we've just accepted that that's a thing that we see. But we didn't get to see that stuff back then. We didn't get to see the tunnel like the, the I found the Pippin going back to get therapy yeah. uh, footage riveting even though that's the kind of thing we'd expect to, to see today. Um, but, you know, the, the behind the scenes, the Jordan the Jordan um, leaves the podium and Stockton and Malone are out there or Jordan, as much as he hates R- Reggie Miller on the court, they're still dapping after after the Bulls are up 2-0. And it's just that, like, and especially uh, we didn't even talk about the um, expletives in the farewell to Jordan and bird after, after they eliminate the Pacers, but just all that, all that stuff is gold. All the cinema verite stuff is just gold where you're just seeing these guys and yeah, the cameras on them, but they're just whispering stuff to each other. And it's like, 
and I, and I, w- I want to say this now because I, I don't, for a lot of reasons, uh, want to give Carl Malone any credit, but I will say that just thematically, thematically, they're still pounding that point home on the Isaiah. And I think the filmmakers went out of their way to so Carl Malone get on the bus to congratulate the Bulls and shake hands. And I don't even think Mike like gets up out of his seat in the back of the bus, <laughs> but you know, just kind of pounding home one more time the idea that the Bulls very much feel like the Pistons didn't shake their hands and how disrespectful this was. And and I feel like the filmmakers went out of I mean it's it's compelling footage anyway, but to show Carl Malone get on the opposing team's bus yeah. that just beat him two t- two years in a row just to say good game. Uh, um, sp- sportsmanship I, I, uh, from the mailman, I will say that. Yeah, no doubt. I It's a good point you make because that was I was laughing actually when uh, I saw obviously Larry Bird and uh, also Reggie Miller, as you pointed to, and then Carl Malone. I was laughing when I saw that because there's no doubt that that was intentional, what they were trying to prove. Uh, the one thing I will say is, you know, for all the talk that um, people say that the the players are too friendly now, and I, I, you know, I mean, I'm I'm kind of fine with that take if that's how you. Oh, feel. What's your take on that? That that you would know better than most. Well, it depends. I mean, first of all, I'll say that that being in Milwaukee and and watching Giannis is a little bit different because he is. Let's just say he's wired a little differently to to a lot of the modern day stars. But I, I do think Jordan like. Would you say that he's Jordan like in his uh, approach? Well, well, I mean, in terms of being a competitor on the court, yes, uh, <laughs> certainly. I don't, I don't, I don't think he's abusing any teammates on the practice floor. But yeah, I mean, he is. Like, he just wants to win at all costs. Uh, he's certainly very respectful Not of yet. everyone. I think that. Yeah, I think that social media has changed things, though, because uh, we saw from this documentary some little insights into guys and the relationships they had that you just simply wouldn't have known, and you wouldn't know if if social media wasn't a thing. So I think. The, the times have changed uh, a little bit there. But uh, yeah, I, I certainly, that was one thing I appreciated from this doc. And I'm not someone who looked at this and was like, oh, well, I'm annoyed that this is actually just a Jordan documentary. I mean, of course it is. And I, and I loved it. And I loved every minute yeah. of it. And I loved the back, uh, the behind the scenes footage. I, I don't know why or how anyone can be upset or, or disappointed with how this came out. I thought it was great. And uh, I, I think that an interesting part of, of that little side of things was I was listening to a podcast yesterday. I'm trying to, I can't remember what it was, but uh, they were mentioning, I think it was Rosillo and uh, it might've been Zach Lowe. Anyway, uh, they were talking about yeah, Jalen, Jalen Rose was really upset that he didn't get back on the floor in that game seven. And he was devastated and he went to the bus uh, to just be alone because he didn't want to talk to anyone. He was really, really hot at, at Larry Bird for, for the fact that he didn't put him back on the floor. So he went to the bus to get away from anyone because maybe he thought he was going to fight Larry Bird. That's how annoyed he was. And when he got to the bus, Larry Bird was already sitting there and and he, he said to him straight away, I'm really sorry I didn't put you back on. That was probably a mistake on my behalf. And he was just devastated as well. And it was just interesting to... Uh, to hear that podcast yesterday and then a few hours later watch this episode and see that probably just minutes before Larry Bird got on the bus, uh, he was had yeah. that interaction with Jordan. It's incredible because from listening to that, you know that he doesn't want to talk to him. He's devastated. He thought this is a game that they should have won and he still uh, had that interaction. That was kind of, a, for me, just the, the timing-wise, that, that was a funny thing to see. And when you see players leave it all out on the court, um 
there, there's very much a thing in, in fandom where you just want to feel that the players care as much as you do as a fan. Sure. Yeah. But there becomes this kind of question because of course you can say that Larry Bird is devastated, but Larry Bird was devastated when he was losing and, and you know, when he was competing against the Lakers and, and the Bucks and the Sixers and all these, you know, like the, all these guys have done this a million times before, you know? So on some level they all hate losing, but no one's, Again, going back to the Jordan Isaiah thing, they're still kind of uh, pounding this point home that, yeah, they can still speak to each other. And it's like Larry doesn't on some level you grasp that Larry doesn't want Jordan to see how angry he must be, <laughs> you know, because because yeah. they've been yeah. they've been through this every year. You know, they, they, they've been competing on a high level uh, since college, all of these guys. And um, but, yeah, I, I did like that Jalen anecdote. Um, also, can we talk about. I thought uh, kind of low key. One of the great stories was Brian Russell um, <laughs> talking smack when Jordan was retired <laughs> and when he was playing baseball. And so randomly, and of course th- th- this entire 10 episodes have established that it doesn't take absolutely anything to make um, Jordan want to destroy you on the court. But just the idea that Brian Russell is just happens to be with Carl Malone and John Stockton, who Jordan says hi to at a baseball game when Jordan's retired and Brian Russell says something sideways to Jordan. And Jordan was like, if I ever come back, I'm going to destroy you. And for, for that to happen to him to come and hit not one, but two finals winning shots on Brian Russell in consecutive years. It's just the craziest thing ever. Well, this is, this is comes back to the Jordan just being absolutely terrifying thing, because uh, even the way they explained it, on on the on the episode to me was brian russell is just having a laugh he's having fun jordan's at a baseball game he's not being rude or he's not being aggressive he's just a young guy and he's probably nervous i don't know but he's just having a laugh and little does he know this is uh going to be in the back of jordan's mind for the next uh decade until or you know a few years whatever until they meet again but this is the crazy thing about jordan he might make something up that you said uh you might do something that you think you're being polite and he'll be able to twist that into some sort of negative and how uh, you've slighted him uh and that's why i I joked earlier about the, the steve kerr speech at the at the championship uh, ceremony because it is honestly I, I feel like it's something that jordan would have twisted around in his head if he needed to in the future i mean this guy just needed no excuse and one of the funny things i, I saw a lot on twitter was everyone joking about how he said uh it became personal with the paces i mean come on come on i mean everything everything <laughs> yeah. was personal it's just it might have been the most common phrase uh over the, over the 10 episodes yeah yeah, this this got personal. You're absolutely right. This got personal, and at the same time, you can imagine like the the great thing kind of about Reg- Reggie Miller is such a hard person to evaluate from a historic perspective mm. because on some level, like in the regular seasons, he was pretty overrated, and I think there was even one year like Detlep was was the all star for the Pacers and not Miller. He just he was like a, a solid borderline all star player in the regular season. And then he just had these highs in the playoffs and he was just, but now of course, if Reggie Miller is, is having these legendary games, cause you know, he failed quite a bit too. If he's having these legendary games against, you know, the Sonics and the Suns in the West, as opposed to like the Chicago market and the New York market, I don't think, you know, Reggie Miller is remembered the same way, but you know, Reggie, Cheryl Miller was, was kicking his butt the, the first 18 years of his life. Like Reggie Miller, Reggie Miller uniquely 
played the role of as a villain just about he's just a perfect foil for Jordan and, and especially late career Jordan. So I, I really enjoy it. I enjoyed all the Reggie Miller portions to be honest. So, so we talked about the uh, Reggie Miller push. Um, so we need the Kane Pittman take on the alleged Jordan push in game six of 1998. Well, I must admit I've always kind of thought when I looked at this, that it would not have taken much effort or force to really uh, get him off balance because he was heading in that direction and he didn't really look like he was in control. I'm not surprised that Jordan obviously said that. But every time I watch the replay and even in slow-mo, and they had a couple of good shots of it uh, last night, it, it does really look like his hand is kind of resting there more than a, a forceful shove. And so I, I've always kind of been okay with the fact that that was a no call but there's no doubt that in terms of of how it looks i mean if if they yeah. if they blew that a push off i mean you can't really complain because it's it's very clear uh that that the hand was there but i, I i've always sort of believed that there was probably less shove and more um yeah. the player stumbling more than anything but but i don't know i mean i've always kind of felt that and i think to, to the surprise yeah. of no one, the documentary lent everyone in that direction last night. Yeah, this documentary is about what Michael Jordan thinks. Um, it, if if kind of the narrative through 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 the last couple of decades was that it might have been a little bit of a shove, it's like fine. We talked a little bit about this in previous episodes. I, I was kind of surprised that the documentary didn't tie this in. To me, the only reason that this was ever a thing is because Isaiah was on color commentary at the time. Isaiah is the one who says, you know, Hey, look at the push yeah, <laughs> like yeah, when yeah, he's yeah. doing the color. And he's, but, but I like, I think Doug Collins or somebody else too, or maybe Doug Collins said this to Simmons and Simmons said it, but he was just like, Isaiah always get Isaiah. Wasn't a hater color commentator at all. He always, that never really came off. So I want to be fair to Isaiah, but yeah, he's like, he's like, yeah, that's what makes Jordan great. He's got all the tricks, but yeah, I, I similarly, similarly have always thought what you just said is that, you know, his fingers don't even really extend. First of all, if you watch it in real time, it's like a half a second move. It's really hard to push when you're going uh, right to left crossover, you know, with the free hand. And even as you, if you notice Jordan's left hand, it kind of slips down Russell's leg by the end of it. So, uh, you know, it, it was an open hand move. It was an open hand move. If anything, it's cert- I don't know if that's a push today, but it's certainly not a call in the final play of a 1998 playoff game. And, and furthermore, and this is kind of the thing that I think never gets uh, mentioned. I'm not sure. Kind of the interesting parallel. There's an interesting thing with uh, a couple of the finals runs where I think this happened in 93 against the Suns too, where the play before the play, Jordan just inexplicably goes right hand. And because there's no fade away, he goes right hand and gets all the way to the cup. And this happened, I think this happened in the Suns uh, under a minute also before the kind of the kickout play to Paxson. They really, if they wanted to, could have called a call. And I think in two, in 2020, they would have called a three-point play or giving them the opportunity for a three-point play on that first layup. But, you know, there's the rules of the time. They didn't call that. They didn't call a call, you know, when Malone kind of flopped after he got stripped, and they didn't call a call at the end. I think it's – I've always thought that was appropriate. Yeah, no, I, I just wanted to say that one of the one of the big things that also has been highlighted 
uh, throughout this. I mean, you talk about a Bulls team that won six titles, but so many close playoff games, and and there was there was a mm-hmm. lot of series that they were in trouble. And I, I think that more than anything, uh, this is what what builds to the greatness of this team or. Uh, the the legend of of the '90s Bulls is that uh, it wasn't always easy for them. They were in a lot of close games, and they were able to get themselves out of some situations that that easily could have gone the other way and 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 changed the course of history. So uh, again, obviously, the the games and the highlights are, are presented in a way that puts the the Bulls in the best light possible. But uh, yeah, it wasn't always easy for this team. You talk about the the series with the Knicks in the early 90s and then through the series with the Pacers and obviously the two finals with the Jazz, uh, it was a battle. It's it, And we talked about the Patriots previously. I think that's, that's similar because the Bulls, the kind of dirty secret about the Bulls is that they usually won game one and they usually got up on their team, you know, on the opponent and they were usually up 2-1. Yeah. But after that, a lot of the teams started to figure them out because, again, the supporting cast relative to, you know, especially in this one, Pippen is hurt. Uh, but, you know, Pippen also off quite often just didn't show up. And so they were this defensive team. But it wasn't like they were a lot like the 92 Blazers were a really good team. The Suns were a really good team. Uh, the Sonics were probably a little bit young. But a lot of those teams were like close to as good as the Bulls, but the Bulls usually had home court and and jumped on the teams right away. And a lot of times they had to hang on till six. So there's a lot of talk about how the Bulls, uh, you know, Michael Jordan never went to a game seven in the finals at least. But also a lot of the series went six games because they were playing really good Western teams, but also because the Bulls weren't really that good. They were great. But again, you just think about it like the Patriots. They were always great enough to do what was necessary but it wasn't like, I mean, it wasn't like the Warriors. I mean, the Warriors with the, I can't even think of what the equivalent would be to, like, you'd have to give the Bulls David Robinson to, to make it something like the Warriors with Durant. You know, that'd be, almost be an equivalent. But they were just they were just a team that, that, as cliche as it is, dug deep when they had to. Um, Leo DiCaprio was there for some reason. <laughs> uh, so... I, was this cameo stranger than the Justin Timberlake one, or I, I would actually say that the the Timberlake way the Timberlake one was worse because for some reason they brought him in for an interview. Um, at least DiCaprio was in the locker room or outside the locker room, I guess. I don't know, but my reaction to uh, Jordan meeting these celebrities is, is always so funny. I mean, he's polite, but it's it's also just like he he's kind of like yeah. Uh, I don't really. I'm not. I'm not that interested in talking to you. The one with Jerry Seinfeld earlier in the series was kind of awkward <laughs> and weird. And Seinfeld was very funny. Like when he walked out and pointed to the player on the board and said, "This is going to work." That was classic. I was dying when I saw that. But before that, the interaction was kind of awkward. He's like, oh, "Hey, Phil," and Phil doesn't really say anything back. So I, I don't know why these little celebrity cameos are in there. But I guess again, it just highlights uh, these mainstream huge celebrities were still. Uh, down on the pecking order compared to, to to Jordan, this phenomenon. Right, because there's no level of stardom higher than having a bunch of you know flunkies and hangers on in a mod <laughs> watch you pretend to play piano in your yeah. in your hotel room exactly. with your cigar and champagne or whatever. That was so it's good, like by who the is way. Leo DiCaprio? 
That was so was good great. that they set that up earlier in the episode, though, when he's like, oh, no, I got a piano in my hotel room. It's the it's uh, Bar Jordan or whatever he said. And then uh, you're like, okay, and you're just laughing. You're like, that's a pretty funny thing to think about. And then, no, yep, an hour later, next episode, he's in there with photographers playing the piano, smoking a cigar. Just ridiculous. I thought, I think he mentioned, you know, when they were asking how he was feeling, I forget if this is the same time, but I wrote down that he said, oh yeah, I'm fine. I got up, had a couple of beers, uh, played the piano (laughs) in my room and then went to practice. (laughs) It was like, oh, you had beers before practice? Probably. But so I'm looking at, at uh, Leo's IMDb right now. And yes, Titanic was 97, but Jordan says, yeah, we just watched the man in the iron face. The other night now he meant to say the man in the iron mask which i was very much tickled by but yeah hey this guy you know he's <laughs> like we just saw the man in the iron face the other day uh but yeah i, I was wondering if he had done tight because of course everyone know everyone at that time knew him for titanic it made more money than any movie in history to that point but yeah just another guy in the orbit yeah well uh i guess if you're michael jordan you're on, on a level where uh, the star actor from the richest film in history is just a just a minnow compared to you. It's going to be uh, it's going to be quite an incredible feeling. Did you have any relationship? I did not. I thought it was cool. Uh, it, it was fine. I, I've pretty much known all these hip hop songs through the first you know six or eight episodes. I didn't have any relationship with this Pearl Jam song. To me, it kind of sounded like the score from Moneyball or those kind of, um, you know, plucking guitar kind of scores. But did, did you have any relationship with that? Not really. I actually felt that in episode nine and 10, I noticed the soundtrack or the music far less than I did in the previous episodes. I don't know why. Like maybe, maybe there was, um, I guess I can't say there was less game footage because we went through the conference finals and the finals, but I don't know. I, I felt like it had less of an impact on me, but no, no, that, that I didn't really uh, recognize that. Yeah, it seems like James Jordan, they did the James Jordan death, and then from that point on, there wasn't a whole lot. They went kind of more to to score as opposed to tracks, but a lot of people were saying, oh yeah, it's great, it's a great deep cut, and I just didn't know it at all. So, Kane, anything else you want to talk about as far as the documentary as a whole or anything else? Um, I mean, the the big thing for me, uh, I just, it's kind of interesting to see the reactions from people in regards to Jordan, the leader, and potentially criticizing him for the way he went about it. I don't really feel that comfortable about that. Like, I'm totally fine with sitting here and saying that he wasn't a great person to his teammates. Like, that's totally fine. Like, we saw that. But I also understand that that was in the 90s. And the reality is, if anyone's actually watching this and thinking that, oh, this is this is the way to win. I can do this in real life. Well, it's not going to happen because you that that doesn't fly in 2020. Like you, you, that's not how how things operate, particularly at, at an NBA team. So I don't really have any concern or feelings that that glorified that treatment of people because I, I just think that it, it's such a different era. I don't think that there's any real connection there. I think it gives an insight into the person in the way he was. And and like I said earlier, I mean, I think in a lot of ways he was 
a strangely lonely figure for someone that was, you know, probably the most rec- recognizable guy in the world. And when he did cry, and this was interesting, or when he teared up a little bit at the end of episode seven, I believe it was. The high- that's the highlight. I was confused about that. That's the highlight of the whole documentary well, to me. Yeah, I mean, I- I've thought about it a lot because like many people, I guess I was confused at why he was emotional. But again, I, I think that touches back on my sort of feelings that he probably feels a little bit bad about that inside. And this is the way he is. And that's the way he was. And and that's what he truly did believe he needed to do to get that team to play the way they did. And maybe he's right. I mean, maybe, you know, if he was, uh, let's just say if he had the skill that he had, the talent that he had, but the personality of Scott Burrell, then yeah. I mean, maybe the Bulls aren't winning titles because they needed that drive. And as you sort of pointed to earlier, the fact they were able to always dig deep and come up with the plays they needed, whether it's defensively or offensively when the time called, yeah, it probably stemmed from that. But I think in a lot of ways he probably feels bad or, or has some regret about some of the things that, that happened along the course of, of his journey. But I think that that's what I took from the documentary. I mean, it's just a different era. It's yeah. a different time. And I, I, I don't – I'm not someone that's out here saying – trying to – uh, I guess say negative things about the way he was back then. I mean, it was what it was and it was in the nineties and it's 2020 now and times are different. We understand that it wouldn't be acceptable now, but uh, I'm not looking at him in a negative light as he sort of expressed that he was concerned about before it started. Yeah. I guess my disconnect comes, I, I read that a little bit differently. I just feel like he got emotional because he's describing the essence of, uh, I mean, I, I thought it was just, so so interesting for someone to be like well this is who i am this is who i am (laughs) no regrets and and i've made all these sacrifices and this is um this is the um the the crux of what what makes me as a person as a man and i i I don't i I don't i don't feel like he regrets anything i feel like he just wanted the opportunity to lay out in 10 episodes through all of this exactly how he feels about every little thing and i i feel like too in the we look at this now in the context of this very good to occasionally great documentary. Um, but other than the Kobe tribute, I, I think the ingraciousness of the hall of fame speech kind of left that. Like if you compare everything he says in this to the hall of fame speech, he's just coming out looking so much better. Um, because that was that, you know, I thought he was maybe a little bit drunk for that one. Just the, kind of the way it came off, it didn't seem prepared. It's, it was, you know, it was like, it's almost like the Jason Kidd Hall of Fame speech or he's just kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But like to me, the disconnect, and, and really this is a question. I don't know if this is a question for you. This is kind of my question because the thing that I don't totally have a handle on is we get these little snapshots of things with Scott Burrell but even when you read the Jordan rules, like this, this kind of back and forth was going on with all these guys. And it didn't seem like, you know, bullying, if we talk about bullying, it's kind of a loaded term, obviously. But it didn't seem to be a whole lot of bullying of, of Pippen. But everybody had a couple of incidents, but it didn't seem to be a whole lot. And Scotty Burrell seemed to be his whipping boy, but they're still friends. So as an example, so every once in a while, like the reason I have a hard time weighing these things is like every once in a while we get like this little bit of information that we're not supposed to know about how guys really talk on the court. Like, you know, like the honey nut Cheerios story, for example. 
and, and then it's like it's like this whole and obviously I know how people talk on, on on a basketball court to the extent that I played growing up. But then you're just like that kind of throws all of these kind of stories about like this kind of minor kind of kind of guy locker room talk into. I'm, I'm sure if that kind of stuff was um, documented word for word, we'd all feel a little bit differently about this, but that was that. And that's one, one of the most striking things about the documentary to me is that we have Jordan is so just about every example of him behind a microphone. He's just perfect. He's just perfect. He's articulate. He, he speaks slowly. He says the right thing. He uh, validates his teammates. He says, we did it. And he, he says, I'm happy for this person. I'm happy for Steve Kerr. We did it as a team, all this kind of stuff. And then there's this other version of himself, which isn't totally a 180, but this other kind of manic, always talking, you know, suck all the air out of the room, all eyes on Jordan, like the, the superstar Jordan. And it seems like the kind of superstar kind of, I mean, it's the id, right? Like that version of him was, was, the, was the version that not a lot of people got to see. And then there's this other version who's just almost, you know, the most perfect kind of example of a, of an athlete for whether he's like accepting an MVP trophy or any of these kind of things, he always would say the right thing. And then, so I, I really, to me, if we got a 10 episode documentary where it was just Michael Jordan, like they could do a whole nother 10 episodes of him just talking about if, if, if the playoffs get going at some point and they just wanted to film Jordan in one of these houses that aren't his, cause I don't know if you know, none of these houses in the background were his, they were just like lookalikes <laughs> cause he said, you're not going to come in my house. Um, he could talk about whatever he thought about the NBA playoffs and I, I'd be here for it, you know? Yeah, no question. And but I, I, I will say I heard uh, the producer Jason Weir was talking about this uh, about how many episodes they were going to have, and much like much like the Bulls in '98, where everyone wanted them to come back, it was cut short. And I think the documentary is the same. I'm seeing a lot of people say that they could have watched another five, another ten, another twenty, whatever it is, episodes, and I'm sure there would have been enough stories to make it happen. But uh, he said, uh, Jason said that at the time when they were trying to negotiate how this was going to happen, that there was originally going to be four episodes uh, or Jason wanted four and the producers wanted eight. And then he felt that they'd settled in the middle somewhere around six. And then ultimately he he found out they signed a deal and there was going to be 10. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think that uh, everyone is very thankful that there was 10 in the end. And uh, I think it's always, it's always best to be left wanting more. That's, that's the way yeah. I always feel about things. And the thing, and probably a good place to close, I mean, it's the thing that we would hope for the Bucks or any of your kind of sports teams that you kind of, and you get this with any kind of quote unquote great man kind of movie where you kind of end or the person, you know, kind of the character dies at the end of the movie and you kind of look back at where they started. And so I thought it was one of the most effective parts of the close of episode 10 is him saying, you know, I hope Chicago, I forget the quote, but he's basically being interviewed as a rookie. And, you know, I hope we can be thought of as the Celtics or the 76ers is like this great franchise because the Bulls were just nothing. And they kind of showed that at the beginning of episode one, they just didn't have this profile. Now, keeping it real, they don't really have this profile now because they haven't done a ton since then. But it's the kind of the thing that we would hope for Giannis with the Bucks or any of these kind of things that that you have a player who through hard work and determination and all that kind of stuff and force of personality puts your team on the map. And then it's really not so much about counting championships. It's about being relevant 
which as Bucks fans has been just about all that we could hope for. Yeah, one generational player that uh, not only himself elevates the the franchise and the level of play, but brings everyone else up with them. Jordan certainly did that, and uh, I think you're right. I mean, we we are a long way away, let's say, from from even bringing one title, let alone six, to Milwaukee. But Giannis, he does. He has those characteristics when you think about the work rate, uh, and also his desire to ensure that the other players on the roster within the franchise. Uh, do whatever they can to get to his level. He he brings everyone up with him, and that's uh, pretty rare and a, and a sign of a pretty special player. So no doubt, I definitely had those thoughts throughout this. Would you say that um, Chris Middleton in Game Six against the Raptors was the <laughs> migraine game, and that that, that the championship uh, twenty twenty uh, COVID season will end with uh, Middleton redeeming himself and uh, leading the Bucks to a championship? Well, we would both love that. I know, I know, I know. and and you know, I've I've actually pretty much erased Game Six from my memory, except for the one thing I will never forget is being in the in the room when when Giannis stood up and walked off, and Chris Middleton's reaction. That's that's my one lasting memory of of Game Six that I've kept. You want to talk about memes? That <laughs> the um is unbelievable, unbelievable. It's yeah. <sighs> That's that one still hurts, but again, it, you, you got to go through the hurts to uh, get to the ultimate prize. So, hey, man, uh, everybody knows you, but why don't you go ahead again and tell the people where they can find you and your work? Yeah, I mean the big, the best thing you can do to support me right now and my the legendary Frank Madden. I have to mention. I, I know yeah. you spoke about him at the start, but he is he is the the man that uh, has been with the podcast right from the start. But locked on bucks, so. Uh, as you sort of mentioned, we are still rolling through. I think we're probably two months away from basketball, so I'll be trying to, to squeeze some more guests in over the next couple of months. But yeah, Lockdown Bucks podcast is uh, the main way you can support me if you jump on and listen to that from time to time. And we'd like to thank everybody else for supporting the podcast, continuing to be overwhelmed by the support and the listens. The podcast started with hope much like the Bulls. So we'd like to thank everybody and we're going to have at least one more episode with a special guest. So we will talk to you then.